pieces of my mind. Oh, I think I stepped on one. Hey, everybody. This is Rabbi David Freeland. Welcome to another episode of Pieces of My Mind. It's the 15th day of our Massachusetts lockdown. I'd like to ask you how your Passover preparation's going. It's not quite the same preparing to be alone. As long as you found some matzah, though, you're never really alone. You carry with you the symbol of Jewish freedom and a connection to enslaved people everywhere and in all times. And let's face it, if you eat enough of it, you'll also carry around a bowling ball-sized tummy that can only be improved by adding a healthy dose of fruit compote. You know what I'm talking about. Today's interview makes references to preparation for the Passover Seder because it was recorded before then. Our special guest on Pieces of My Mind today is Rabbi Howard Voss Altman. Howard's been the rabbi at Temple Bethel of Providence, Rhode Island for five years now and a wonderful friend for a few decades with his professional experience as a rabbi and an attorney and a citizen of two countries. Howard brings a refreshing insight to just about anything. David, how are you? Doing great. I'm thrilled to have you on the show for a few reasons, actually. First, of course, it's great to talk to friends, but there's several topics that you have some interest in and some uh, knowledge of that uh, sort of affect our our understanding of current events. Now, Howard, you're, uh, you're a dual citizen of the United States and of Canada. We are dual citizens. We lived in Canada for uh, 13 years I was formerly the rabbi of Temple B'nai Tikva in Calgary, and we decided after probably about nine or ten years to to get citizenship, and now all five of us uh, have it. So it's nice to be able to uh, think about living elsewhere if we needed to. Sure, and at a time like this where we're seeing how different nations respond to a public health emergency, a worldwide pandemic, what have you noticed uh, different between, say, the United States and Canada? There's, first of all, and you and I, David, have discussed this in the past, that there's a trusting relationship between government and its citizens. And the foundation of that trust comes from knowing that you have healthcare that is administered by the the government. When the government is talking to you about a public health crisis, there's a sense that they have a stake in your health. And, and that is not apparent in our own country. Um, our, our citizens are often disconnected from healthcare. And there's a sense that because we are on our own, that we are on our own for in, in terms of a crisis. In Canada, when, when uh, the prime minister speaks uh, to the nation about healthcare, he's speaking as a, a, as a national leader who has a stake in everyone's uh, good health. 
And it makes a difference as to how people are invested in their nation and invested in their neighbor's uh, health as well. Sure. We even saw from uh, the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, that his wife uh, grew ill with uh, COVID-19 and that he followed suit and conducted government business from isolation and has continued to do so. Well, there's a sense of responsibility and also a sense of personal ethic. Having uh, gone through something with his wife, he understands both the gravity of, of the crisis that we're facing, uh, but also the empathy when he's addressing the nation. That it's, it's not just something that, that someone else is experiencing, it's something that, that, that he, is, um, he is dealing with and his family is dealing with. And I think that sort of candor and honesty makes all the difference when you're talking about a, a sense of, of belief and, uh, as I said, of trust uh, in, uh, in his message. Here, there's no sense of, of any trust in fact, based on, on uh, what we've heard for the last three and a half years, uh, a sense that we're not getting the, the unvarnished truth. Indeed, we're getting, we're getting more of a sense of propaganda and a sense of give them the good news so that they have some hope, as opposed to uh, actually dealing with a public health crisis in an honest way. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that, of course, Canada has government-administered health care. Um, I think you could probably help to put some listeners uh, into a better state of understanding. The difference between government-administered healthcare versus government-run healthcare or fully socialized medicine, say, as with National Health in uh, Great Britain. Well, the, the experience that we've had is that we had uh, three children who were basically from infancy until age 19. So we had kids zero, two, and, and six, and we lived there for 13 years. And in that time, our family uh, never expended a single penny on our children's health care, uh, let alone ours. And when I think about that, that experience, the reason we, we had that was because our neighbors were actually invested in our own health care, and we were invested in our neighbors. And it speaks to an ethic of sacrifice and also of, of, uh, of care for one's own neighbors. It, it's, it's not really about healthcare in my mind. It's about, about a sense of community and that we make sacrifices together so that everyone, whether they are a CEO or unemployed, has healthcare. They're not going to the emergency room and then raising insurance rates for everybody else. They're going to the emergency room because they need healthcare. And we are, we, there's a sense of, of a shared responsibility and a shared ethic of looking out for one's, for one's neighbor. Yeah, the social contract extends a little bit further in Canada. And, well, it, it uh, extends much further, actually, because when the prime minister says we're in this together, it's not just, they're not just words. That's, that's actually the contract between the governed and, and those who govern. Entirely, entirely different circumstances from our own. The cultural conditions are actually one of the biggest forces for the difference in response between countries right now in terms of how public health emergency is being handled. And you see it across the world. Countries that do have more of a sense of social cohesion are generally behaving better, generally bending the curve downward much faster. And I have been following the numbers from Canada and with certain uh, sub-communities of notable exceptions. 
we're seeing those numbers uh, shift much faster in some countries than others, and Canada is one of them. I think Canada has a couple of advantages over other nations. First of all, people are much more spread out. Social distancing is not as difficult because uh, even those who live in the cities have a sense of personal space and there's a greater commitment to following to following the command, not commands, but the instructions, the guidance of the government, not only because of trust, but also because there's less of a sense of don't tread on me in Canada than there is in, in other nations, particularly the United States, whereby there's a, a sense of distrust and a, and, a, and a constant feeling of we've been told to do something, well, I'm not going to do that thing. So that people's response to going to church or observing social distancing rules are automatically distrusted. And there's a sense of, as the government is not in a position to help us, we're going to do what we want, as opposed to a Canadian perspective, which is the government's giving us sound advice. We should follow that advice for the benefit of all. It's completely, I I think, a real indication of not only social cohesion, but of a profoundly different relationship to government than we have here. I couldn't agree more, uh, Howard. I think it's, it's, you know, that we give and we get with each country, with each society. Uh, there are certain things that we take for granted as Americans in terms of uh, personal freedoms, but I don't think that we always reflect adequately on the price that we pay collectively to maintain some of those personal freedoms. And we don't necessarily have the public dialogue and the public debate as to how we can best balance them so that we maintain the character of American society and American government while also securing ourselves in ways that really matter. I think that balance um, has been lost, David, in the last, I would say, oh, I, well, generation, really. I would, I would, go, I would go back as far as, um, as, as, the 19, as the late 1980s. But for the last generation, there has been a, um, I think, a feeling that the public square is no longer a place where civil exchanges happen. And and as a result, there's been a a loss of commitment to the public square. And we have suffered as a result of that development in, in very, very significant ways. Uh, civil society is is not what it was, and and it's reflected in both partisanship, but also in willingness to hear another perspective. I think it's really hampering our ability to dispassionately evaluate evidence from scientists and other experts within our country. We see how we've had sort of a slow response or slower than it should have been response to a pandemic when we've had plans for 15, 20 years. This is a regular part of our national defense strategy. It's a regular part of our civil defense strategy to coordinate efforts between federal, state, and local governments in the event something like this should happen. Our own experts knew the high likelihood of something like this occurring. And so the fact that we fumbled it, it, it's, it seems our ability to listen to people who know more than we do has been severely hampered. My only hope here is that as we see 
scientists and physicians elevated to positions of responsibility in national life and people look up to them and come to trust their advice that we remember, oh, there are actually scientists and experts in other fields that we should be hearing as well. We should be listening to people who are warning us about climate change. We should be listening to people who are warning us about water pollution and air pollution, that the long-term effects are getting closer to us all the time. We have a habit to future discount to such a degree. Perhaps this will rekindle some interest in uh, science as a worthy, uh, a worthy guide for our society, not the only one, but a worthy one. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, David. I, I just finished uh, Elizabeth Rush's beautiful book called Rising, which is the uh, Rhode Island Reads choice uh, for this year. And, uh, and Rush speaks, the subject of the book is about our coastal communities that are in danger from rising sea levels. And time and again, she speaks about scientists who are in a position to know about the effects of climate change on sea level and that they've spent most of their adult life studying these, these effects, both in terms of field work and in terms of academic work, and that these voices have to be heard in a really substantive way. We are, we are, are reaching a point where information uh, is no longer seen as information, but rather as as um, just propaganda on either side. And as long as people see information and scientific evidence as propaganda, rather than some form of objectivity that's, that is designed to assist uh, in quality of life and public health, then we're, we're as a nation, we are, are going to struggle. And I, I, I pray that you're right, that we will come through this with a newfound respect um, for, um, for scientific expertise and expertise, as you said, in all areas, uh, sociological expertise, expertise dealing with social issues such as, as poverty or public health that we really need the very best uh, and brightest minds working on. And, and the embrace of those minds are, are, is crucial uh, to, our, to our literal survival and to our children's survival. Sure. I've had enough of people saying, you know, don't tell me what to do. You know, that's not necessarily a, a good a good path forward rather than maybe I can listen to what you say and evaluate it. I, oh. Hey, I'd settle if we could just teach every child the Iliad so they knew who Cassandra was. <laughs> I think, I think that may be a pipe dream. That's, that's, that's a little farther away. I would, I would settle. I would settle for evolution. For example, <laughs> the fact that in 2016, you wouldn't have a single Republican candidate who would who would say that evolution is a, a scientific theory that they would they would accept the fact that no one could do that um, in 2016 spoke I think very very profoundly about I, I the have a uh, I have a, a pet our society I'd like to see adopted widely regarding that I would like for all those people who do not accept evolution to have a check off on their health insurance application that would follow them throughout the health care system. So that uh, should they come in with a bacterial infection, they are only eligible for first-generation penicillin and sulfa, because none of their bacteria have evolved, so they should be just fine. Uh, let's get some skin in the game, you know, and then we can see some Darwinian <laughs> yeah. action here in, 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 in the human population as well. I, I, I hate to go down that road, 
I hate to go down that road, but but it will be curious, and I don't know when you're you're um, going to broadcast this, but I'll be curious to know how um, how we do over Easter. Will people abide by um, the advice of our elected officials to say, please don't go to mass, please don't go to services? You may find that um, that in terms of public health and in terms of thoughtfulness about your neighbor, that this is not a wise course of action. Please stay home. It will benefit all. And whatever religious experience you have will be, um, will be that much more fruitful and that much more beneficial because you lived in accordance with religious teachings about loving your, your neighbor. And I'm I'm sensitive to the concerns of many Christians, particularly uh, those who are Catholic or Orthodox and how important uh, the Eucharist is on Easter. And I I understand that it puts them in a terrible place to not be able to engage in this vital sacrament. But what can you do? I mean, this is, you know, I know some churches are adopting a drive-through and that can be done in a sanitary fashion. And they might have Eucharistic ministers who could actually drop off. Apparently there are to-go cups. I, I talked to a okay. pastor friend of mine that have, you can get a, uh, a plastic cup with a snap top with a, a portion of consecrated wine. And then there's a little a double lid that holds the wafer that has also been consecrated. So they can do this in a sanitary fashion, but gathering in one place is, uh, it's just a nightmare. You know, I, when I think about um, my limited knowledge of, of, of Christianity, but I, I think about, um, two basic commandments that Jesus taught. One was the Shema and the other was to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that that these are these basic teachings both would be fundamentally violated by by attendance on Easter Sunday and and that indeed if we're to to follow I think teachings that would have been taught on this day and in this day and age, stay home. As, as we can tell all of our Christian ha- friends, chai vahem. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. You should live by them, not die by them. Right, uh, exactly. The, the classical rabbinic advice on how, how to implement mitzvah in general, is that they should yes. in fact be uh, adding to your life, not detracting from them, and that they shouldn't actually bring you into danger of losing it. Uh, exactly. Because nefesh, you know. As, as long as we're talking about Easter, we should probably roll over to Pesach, too, and Seder. Oh, why don't we roll to Pesach? That's always good. Yes. My favorite holiday. <laughs> hey, as I, as I give my tagline from the people who made Christmas possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so for, pa- for Pesach, I know we're, I, I think, are you doing a Zoom Seder at Bethel as well? We are, we are doing a limited Zoom Seder. We are, um, having a meet and greet prior. We are uh, chanting the order of the Seder, doing the Kiddush. Um, we are washing hands, doing karpas, and, um, and breaking the middle matzah. Are we doing um, washing hands for a full 20 seconds with soap and water this year? With soap and water. With soap and hot water. Hot water. Very Absolutely. hot water. Followed by a little sanitizer, just so you should be safe at the table, right? Exactly. And if I see anybody touching their face before we get the mozi matzah, <laughs> we have a problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. There'll be no lamb, no lamb for you. <laughs> but, but um, so we're doing that, and then we're signing off, letting people tell the Magid uh, themselves. 
and then we'll come back and I'll do Birkat um, Hamazon, and then uh, a couple of hours later, along with Chagadya and perhaps uh, a little singing of Lishana Habaa. So it's um, it's beginning and ending, and enabling people both to have a little sense of community, but also a little sense of of uh, of doing Passover as they would, based on their own minhag. Which would be drink two cups of wine, eat dinner, and then go uh, go away from the table. <laughs> it 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 could be. It could be it that. Could be. I've noticed yeah. some people do that. Uh, <laughs> we're going to try and keep it up. Uh, what are you going to What are you going to do? We're, we're going to try and keep it up until Shulchan Oreich, uh, mm-hmm. because I know we've got a lot of people who are isolated and living alone, and I know yeah. that you know even if you were wise, you should ask the four questions of yourself and answer them. I don't know yeah. that everybody would do that, and we're we're hoping to ease that sense of isolation that many people are feeling. I I think those who are in uh, assisted living are really feeling it because many people simply can't go out their front door right now. Living and it's not just they can't go out their front door, it's also that they can't have visitors. I think they that- They can't have visitors, that's right. Right, yeah. that they, they, what they're missing is, because they have each other to a certain degree. But they can't um, and they have with each other. Be, living yeah. facilities, but they're missing seeing their families in, in a real way. And, yeah. and the phone in a Zoom conference, it never will replace uh, the touch of a hand or, or, or the hug that a, an elderly person really depends upon. It's, it's very, true. very tough time. It's true. And, you know, it's not just the elderly, you know, it's, it's yeah. bizarre. You know, I just finished a, a three month sabbatical and uh, was not able to greet anybody in person when I got back. Yeah. Uh, no hugs. No, it was, yeah. uh, it was really bizarre. So in other news, um, you know, Howard and I are both uh, fans of the band Fish. And, you know, it's been, uh, been exciting news, even while we're in isolation, because the boys from Vermont, have uh, instituted a weekly free stream of a classic concert. How cool is that? And it's going to be the uh, jam-filled donut tomorrow night. Isn't that right? That is. I'm, I am very excited about that. I know my kids are thrilled to pieces that they get to, you know, watch another fish concert. They're, they're excited about that. Um, were you there for the jam-filled night? The, we were there for um, uh, Canadian Maple. How appropriate. And, 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 and I believe we were there for Sprinkles. I think those were, those were our, our for two. Sprinkles. We were uh, Bettina and I were there for the powdered donut. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for, for our listeners who are not familiar with what we're talking about, uh, Fish, that would be P-H-I-S-H, a wonderful band uh, that was centered in Burlington, Vermont, where they met, went to school, just been taking the world by storm since then. Uh, freeform improvisational as well as uh, highly orchestrated and composed masterful musicians, very, a very, the biggest cult band in the world, I suppose we could call them. I think uh, so. And I think that's very they have played at this point, I guess, uh, 60 shows or, or so at the Madison Square Garden, or they have eclipsed that already, maybe more. I, I think they've uh, played more than that. Maybe close to 70. But they, in the uh, summer of 2017, they did an amazing feat, which is that they played 13 nights at Madison Square Garden, selling out every night, and they never repeated a song. They've got such a large catalog that they played three hours a night, 13 nights, and never repeated a song. The feat was so stupendous that a banner was raised to the rafters of Madison Square Garden to commemorate the event. Uh, and 
since it was 13, it was called the Baker's Dozen. And the boys being what they are in the band, they had a secret contract going with Federal Donuts down in Philadelphia that was bringing a truck with 5,000 surprise donuts for each night of the shows. <laughs> so that the theme of the songs would center around the flavor of the donut. And the first 5,000 fans to enter Madison Square Garden got a donut. And then you had to figure out how they would make it work. It was just amazing. And David, I was particularly thrilled that the, um, on the second night, which was Canadian Maple Night, that the set first set began with the singing of O Canada. And, uh, and Annie and I stood in our, with our hands over our hearts singing O Canada, probably the only one, maybe the only ones in the place that knew the lyrics uh, by heart. And it was, it was so terrific. Yeah, I fade out after my home in sacred land. Yeah. <laughs> True patriot love. And, and they must have played Sugar Shack that night. Is that right? They did. They did. And was Trey, had Trey learned it by then or was he still? Yeah, no, uh, he did. He had it. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those who are not familiar with the song, it's a, a song about a sugar shack, a place where maple syrup is made uh, out in the woods. For those who've never seen a sugar bush operating, it's a pretty impressive sight to see all the vacuum lines running from the maple trees. And, uh, it's, and, and, uh, and it's, David, a, it's a tricky tune. Yeah. David, I would be remiss, as long as we're talking about, about uh, sugar shacks, to not mention my very favorite song about, about maple syrup, which is Pete Seeger's Maple Syrup Time. And he, which is a song not about maple syrup as much as it is about revolution. So um, when, 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 when Seeger speaks about keep up the fire, it's maple syrup time. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a call to action. So I, I have always loved it. And I wish the boys had played it actually that night. But um, one of my favorite, favorite tunes and a great, a great tune for, uh, for anyone to check out. Boy, I, re I remember seeing... Pete Seeger as a teenager, as he set up on the South Street Seaport for an impromptu show for children who were there. Because oh. uh, one of the guys, the Greenpeace ship was at port, and there, Pete just showed up with a banjo, and kids sat down in a circle around him, and he started playing. He said, wow, look at that. <laughs> That's Pete <laughs> and Seeger. And it's interesting, because speaking of, of, of Burlington, Vermont, uh, my one and only time seeing Pete Seeger was in Burlington, Vermont. Ah. And there was a young mayor... Uh, this was 1986, a young mayor of Burlington at that time named Bernie Sanders, who not only introduced the show, but in the middle of the second set, passed the hat, raising money for um, X-ray uh, machines and equipment for the Santanista regime in, uh, in Nicaragua at the time. It was quite the, quite the evening. Yes. Pete Seeger, folk singing treasure and noted American communist. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Fellow traveler, thank you very much. <laughs> Fellow traveler. Yes. Well, you never want to hide your political sympathies there, Howard. <laughs> not, not too much. Not too much. <laughs> hey, it's great to speak with you. I'm wishing you uh, a Zis and Pesach, as they say in uh, French. <laughs> uh, yeah. And by the way, that greeting in Canada is the, is the common greeting, not, not, uh, not anomaly. Not an anomaly, but indeed how people greet each other. And, and to your family, to yeah. Bettina and to Raphael and Eliana and Talia, a very existent Pesach. And thanks for having me. It's been such fun talking. Absolutely. We'll do it again soon. Oh, good. That was Rabbi Howard Voss Altman of Temple Beth El in Providence, Rhode Island. Boy, I still remember our oldest children playing together as toddlers. The years sure do fly by.
It's always great to speak with Howard. And I hope that all of you have had a wonderful Passover. And for those of you who are celebrating Easter, that your preparations are going well and that you're making the best of it. I'll be talking to you soon. Wait! Where are you going? I was going to make espresso.